Good morning. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'd like to welcome you before I hand over to Peter to chair this morning. We're here courtesy of the British Library, for which many thanks they are hosting the breakfast, and the event is being put on in association with the Arts Council and Arts and Business. I will tell you very briefly that Editorial Intelligence is one year old today, so this is our birthday party as such. This is our 10th event of its kind. And what do we do and why do we do these events? We're something of a portal to the ideas and the people behind the ideas that shape policy and agenda and issues in the so-called commentariat. We help you navigate amongst the ideas and possibly locate the people and, dare I say it, have a nice time doing so as well. So without further ado, <clears throat> I will introduce you to your chair, Mr. Peter York. Now, he is a, he is a, uh, double, a double figure. He's Peter York and he's Peter Wallace. As Peter York, he's known to you as the cultural commentator and the independent columnist and the author of such books as uh, The Sloan Ranger's Handbook and the recently published Dictator's Homes, which I cannot commend too highly to you. Uh, and with his other hat, he's somebody called Peter Wallace, who is an altogether more uh, secret figure, anonymous figure. And he co-founded the management consultancy SRU with the estimable Lord Stevenson. And uh, SRU and Peter have been responsible for some of the major strategic uh, positioning and works with cultural and media institutions like DCMS and the BBC. So, very well qualified, Peter. Thank you, Julia. That all sounded good, didn't it? Um, and thank you all for coming so early, and thank you all, too, for being so obviously distinguished, so obviously important, so obviously well-read. I can tell. I just can tell. Now, we're overlooked by culture here, the core of the culture, the core of the collection, and it's fantastically intimidating. This is the original Royal Library, all large and leathery. Very big books. Now, you know the form here, as I'm telling you. I'm not a regu regular communicant here, but I, I'm sure all of you are, and you will know the form here. Humanities 1, pick up. Humanities 2, getting more grown up. Rare books, serious fogies. Science 1, geeks only. It's a, it's a wonderful continuum, so to speak. Well, um, culture, Goebbels, was he right? Um, uh, you will... Uh, I looked it up because I, I'd taken on that quote from my parents without ever, ever interrogating it, without ever really seeing whether he'd said that, when he'd said that, where and how. But he did say it exactly as I'd remembered it, i.e., whenever I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver. Um, culture, what did it ever do for us, and more particularly UK PLC, how should we value it? What should we say about our culture? What should media say about our culture? Should it have special treatment because it's important overseas? What is it anyway, high or low, elitist or gloriously, as all institutions know, inclusive? Very important to be inclusive. Is it the arts or is it the creative industries or something else again? Do we think of it or pronounce it in the French or the German way, meaning rather different things. T.S. Eliot's famous definition read in Notes Towards the Definition of Culture, the term culture includes all the characteristic activities and interests of a people. 
Derby Day, Henley Regatta, Cows, the 12th of August, a cup final, the dog races, the pin table, the dartboard, Wensleydale cheese, boiled cabbage cut into sections, my favourite thing, um, beetroot in vinegar, 19th century Gothic churches, and the music of Elgar. The reader can make his own list. Now that's 1948. What would he include now? Chicken tikka masala, Michael Palin for sure, uh, garden centres, the music of Lord Lloyd Webber, pub quizzes, visiting National Trust houses, M&S, children in need telethon, sun-dried tomatoes, French farmhouses, Griffiths Jones, I think. Anyway, <laughs> Elliot didn't say anything about the overseas financial returns to culture. Um, uh, and he didn't propose any sort of metrication of our culture. However, the Chancellor does, on a constant basis. He's always banging on about something called the creative industries. Opening the London Design Festival last year, he praised their all-round wonderfulness and their glorious metrics, meaning their revenue growth, he gave percentages, their employment uptake and their exports. And New Labour does love metrics. But what are they, these creative industries? Incidentally, while Gordon Brown said he wanted London to be the world's creative capital. So, how do the creative industries relate to culture? And to define and discuss all this, we've got a fantastic lineup of people, a panel of people who all evidently know their stuff and are distinctive viewy too. And in running order, they are Sir Colin Lucas, Chairman of the British Library, our host today, Tony Hall, Chairman of the Royal Opera House, Zoe Williams, The Guardian's cultural columnist. Now, Sir Christopher Frayling, whose familiar moustache you might have expected to see, amazingly has morphed into Ben Evans, co-founder of the London Design Festival, and finally Colin Tweedy, CEO of Arts and Business, and another of this morning's sponsors. That's the running order. They'll each do a what I think is for no more than five minutes, and then it's your turn your questions, your observations, your clarifications and corrections, and it's all yours till 9.15ish when you've, we've got to wind up and you all, you've all got to go and rule the world. So, um, our first speaker, Sir Colin Lucas, historian by trade, chairman of this place, an academic at Sheffield, Manchester, Oxford, Chicago, latterly Master of Balliol, Vice-Chancellor of Oxford till 2004, the sort of CV that makes people like me VV nervous. But he should certainly know what he thinks culture is. Sir Colin. Thank you. Um, first of all, as chairman of the library, I want to welcome you here uh, and to thank you for coming and to be part of our library, which is your library. Um, I think the first thing I should do is to respond or to rise to uh, Peter's uh, demand for a definition of culture. Uh, a single definition of culture seems to me to be pretty difficult to achieve. Uh, a so-called national culture, for example, is a compound. It's a compound of practices of sociability, inherited ideas, a strong imaginative landscape, uh, expressions of sensibility. Um, a more or less common accord over forms and ways of being and over some general values, a striving to represent in different media a perception of humankind and its context, and so on and so on, all the way from chicken masala uh, through to sliced beetroot, which I don't recognize in my culture. 
the way in which all that fits together also changes over time, whether by borrowing from new arrivals, bearing other cultures, uh, as Peter said, or um, uh, by the impact of shifting material conditions. Um, high culture and popular culture may be viewed as discrete elements, but they cannot be understood without being related to the whole. Culture is, in many ways, I think, about identity. It's what we share, but also what distinguishes us from others. Cultures are read, I think, through their, um, through their products. Museums, of course, display uh, some such products, uh, often those deemed to be great. Um, but I do mean read, uh, also more literally. A great library, like uh, the British Library, is not a museum. It's a place where is gathered an enormous diversity of cultural product which expresses the great complexity of our culture, of other cultures, and of our encounter with those other cultures. Uh, this year I noticed that the DCMS has been asking people to vote for the top icons of England. 20% of those votes uh, has gone to books and to their characters, Pride and Prejudice, Alice in Wonderland, Sherlock Holmes, and so on. And I think that brings home how central our literature is to our sense of ourselves. Our national imagination is expressed uh, in stories and in our sensibility to the use of our own language. And at the British Library, we are perceived certainly as uh, the keepers of the word, and I may add of the sound too in our great sound archive. Keepers of the word through our manuscript archives, our 400-year-old right to receive a copy of every book published in Britain. <coughs> and currently, the library acquires uh, 600,000 uh, items each year through legal deposit. It's a serious number of kilometers of new shelving each year. And it has a face value of about 10 million pounds. And in addition, we spend 16 million to acquire all research level material published overseas in both print and digital form that relates to this country and to many other uh, uh, themes that we follow. And thus we build on our inherited state, not simply as a great depository of the national culture, but also of the cultures of other parts of the world. Now, I don't think we should think of the library as just the holder of the nation's memory or one vast storehouse of knowledge. If it was just a storehouse, it would be fairly sterile, I think. For one thing, that, that knowledge and the richness of that culture must be made ex accessible. It, it, it serves no ultimate purpose if it's not accessible, if there's no interface with it, no reaction to it, no fertilization from it. And it's for that reason that we are, for example, digitizing three million pages of 19th century newspapers, uh, that we've introduced the turning, of the, turning the pages um, technology to allow access to priceless manuscripts, that we've joined with Microsoft to digitize 25 million pages of out-of-print books. And it's important to remember that in the last 10 years, the web has begun to liberate the word hoard in the library. Uh, in reality, I think the web has introduced a new cultural form. It's a form that draws upon and bonds with this evolving inherited culture in our collections, but it also accelerates a new culture for our library to collect and interrogate. Equally important, knowledge is a curious resource. Unlike most others, it's not depleted, but increased by use. The more people use it, the better. The knowledge economy consumes a raw material that is augmented by use. 
And the library well understands this knowledge cycle and its own crucially strategic place in it. Uh, it's uh, the measure of a buoyant knowledge economy uh, that the rate of increase and the dissemination of information grows. There's no point in having knowledge without access to it. Uh, the value of the knowledge economy depends upon how accessible it makes information, how well it stores it, interprets it, navigates it, and transfers it. And so we welcome everybody doing research for academic, public policy, personal, commercial reasons, uh, whether they come in person or by virtual means. Indeed, the library's new business and IP center has had 25,000 business clients since it opened in 2004. So to conclude, here we are at the intersection of two functions that may be termed cultural. On the one hand, we enable knowledge to fructify based upon a Nobel Prize winning methodology known as contingent valuation. Uh, external assessors have measured the total value added each year to the United Kingdom economy directly and indirectly by the library as 360 million pounds. That's to say four pounds 40 for every Invest, pound invested of public money here. On the other hand, we stand in the middle of a fast-flowing stream of creative culture in the process of rapid transformation through the digital revolution. And the challenge facing the library is to maintain its ability to collect, preserve, and transmit this restless new culture, this ever-extending knowledge in the new age. This is an enormous resource, and the encounter with it produces inspiration, new ideas, from new philosophy through to new entrepreneurs. The library underpins the unique creative enterprise of the United Kingdom in all its forms, not simply the form of the creative industries, not simply the form of adding value to the economy, but also to simply the growth of our and transformation of our own culture. Thank you, Sir Colin. Well, a strong imaginative landscape, a lot of it contained in books, and the best that ever, uh, ever was written delivered up through the new technologies or 360 million a year. It's a very, very good thought. Um, our next speaker is Tony Hall, Chief Executive of the Royal Opera House, where he's set up initiatives to make it more inclusive, more modern, and just sometimes a bit cheaper. And I, but I first knew him as a client, as king of the BBC's news operations, launcher of Radio 5 Live, the first 24-hour news and sports station, BBC News 24, BBC News Online, BBC Parliament, all the things that the BBC's competitions squeak about all the time, which I think is probably a good sign. He's also chairman of the Theatre Royal East, on the Channel 4 board, and lots of arts and media good things. More intimidation <coughs> for, for me, Tony. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to start off, I want to make three points this morning. First of all, um, it, it is odd that in culture and in arts we have to make the argument for culture in arts. If we were in sport, we wouldn't even need to make the argument. Um, the arguments about why, for example, the Royal Opera House matters and why what we're doing matters is as much about who we are, where we're going, where we've come from, our heritage, as well as about simply giving joy to an awful lot um, of people. I see our role as taking an enormous canon of work, making sense of it for today's generation, but also taking opera and ballet, the artists, uh, the choreographers, um, the musicians, and seeing how those art forms can move forward. To what end? Partly for the artist's ends. 
but also from the point of view of the audiences that we, we speak to. And that, I think, is value um, in itself. If you look at uh, audiences coming out of a sensational production, they are transformed. I know it myself. If you look at kids who come and take part in A Chance to Dance or a write an opera uh, uh, programme, again, you see that transformation. We should not have to argue that. It should be self-evident to everybody that that's what arts and culture, and in particular the performing arts, can do to you. Second point I want to make is about uh, culture and community and regeneration. Um, I'm sure many of you have been to the Sage, for example, uh, in, New in Gateshead. I nearly said Newcastle, that would have got me into trouble. Uh, in, in Gateshead. And when you walk in through those doors and you see people who are coming into a building for the first time and you see them listening and, and understanding what's going on there musically and being tempted and tasted into something there, you know that the power <coughs> of a building like that and an organisation like that to make a difference to people's lives is huge. It also has regenerated an enormous part of Tyneside. So the idea of regeneration and culture, I think, is very important. <coughs> Tomorrow, um, at the Thames Gateway Forum, um, I'll, I'll be announcing with, with Tessa Jowell the move of our production base, where we make sets, we paint sets and designs, uh, and so on, from where they currently are in the middle of the Olympic Village out to uh, Thurrock. Um, this is a project which has absolutely gone uh, full steam ahead the last six months. I've been amazed about it. And what's really touched me about it is people in the Thames Gateway area saying, you moving, what you know, to us is just, a, is, a, is, a, is just a place where we make our sets and we paint our design. Moving out to Thurrock will act as an anchor for schools. It gives them something to show what they can do to, to raise their skills. An anchor for apprenticeships. But also they started saying, it'll be like John Lewis is coming into the area. Other people are being attracted by the fact they know that you're coming. That's another part of the power, I think, of culture. The third thing I want to say is about the power of um, our culture um, for the UK. I hate talking about the UK PLC. We're not a PLC, you know, that's, but, but let's say to the UK PLC. Um, I was in China uh, two weeks ago um, uh, negotiating and helping negotiate um, the Royal Ballet going to China in the run-up to the Olympic Games as part of a programme which one or two others are also looking at. That's important for the UK. Um, they also want our help. They want our help technically, they want our help in, in, in understanding how to run venues. Today I read, as you might have done in The Guardian, that the French, are, uh, a delegation is going to Abu Dhabi today to see about opening a Louvre there. Um, the Pompidou Centre is expected to open a branch in Shanghai. The Rodin Museum is expected to open something in Sao Paulo. The arts in this country could be like the world services to broadcasting, an absolute gold standard. At the moment, to be blunt, we have a British council which is underfunded. They were fantastically helpful to me in China, but underfunded in terms of you know, what they should be and could be doing. And we have a government which has so far said, we're interested, we'd like to talk about this, but nothing much has come out the other end. And I just want to leave you with this one thought. We have the best arts, the best culture in this city and this country, I think, anywhere in the world. Um, but our cloak is going to be stolen by all sorts of other people who can see the value of that to them in a global economy. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tony. Um, taking the canon, making sense of it, self-expression, self-development, Gateshead, regeneration. So it's like John Lewis. You put down some sort of arts institution, 
we know what the John Lewis retail gravitation effect is, and it's completely wonderful, and it's a very high moral tone organisation too. So that's how the arts work. But there's a wake-up call in there, I hear, but for us in general, uh, recognising what we've got and funding it. Um, next up is Zoe Williams, um, The Guardian's columnist, culture critic, She's also restaurant critic for the Sunday Telegraph, so her life is long one battle against obesity. And um, I first came across her in the Evening Standard, where I thought she was very, very funny indeed about things I wanted to hear about. And then that great culture critic, Julie Birchall, who is never wrong, said, Miss Williams is very clever, don't you think? And I said, oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> OK, well... Um I think just for, just for the sake of argument, let's divide culture into three things. High culture, low culture, or mainstream or popular culture, and this nebulous idea of Britishness, which really does seem to be mainly beetroot. <laughs> Who would have thought of all the root vegetables? We'd go for that, but there we go. I suppose the Irish already have potatoes. Anyway, um, mainstream culture, I think, does stimulate um, spending. A lot of it does so expressly. That's its express purpose, and a lot of it mimics advertising. So... You know, it, no culture is hermetically sealed, but certainly the interplay between non-advertising popular culture and advertising is almost invisible to the naked eye. Um, and I think the stuff that isn't, you know, if you take the kind of sex in the city model as a kind of quite sophisticated, but nevertheless mainstream cultural event, it is ceaselessly trying to stimulate this kind of dissatisfaction that can only be solved with a pair of shoes. Or, you know, Hollyoaks might might stimulate dissatisfaction that can only be solved with a Kentucky Fried Chicken. They all kind of set their sights at different levels and they stimulate you to want to spend, which on the face of it would seem to be very good for business. Obviously this isn't an unalloyed good for business because even as capitalism generally relies on a certain amount of confidence, I don't think there's any economic model that benefits from complete rank delusion. So, you know, the whole L'Oreal because I'm worth it um, ethos, which makes people spend much more than they have, I don't think ultimately is beneficial for business. High culture, of course, has a completely, it, it comes from completely the opposite angle, which is that it arrests spending in many ways. It kind of fosters economic disengagement. It gives people a respite from wanting to consume. Um, you know, the, one of the defining moments in learning to value art is learning the difference between coveting and appreciating. You know, you would never look at Henry Moore and want to own it. Even if you did own it, you would still leave it on Millbank. You wouldn't take it home. Um, and I think theatre, the live arts also, they are, really do stress this kind of communality, both in form and content. You never come out of a Shakespeare play wanting some new shoes or thinking, indeed, anything would be solved by new shoes. Um, you know, so it, on, the face of, on the face of high culture, it would seem that it wasn't actually very beneficial to business because it does, business does rely on people thinking they need things. I mean, we, we've got to kind of um, admit that. And it does come back to what um, Sir Colin was saying about the knowledge economy. The more people use it, the better. Whereas business really would seem to depend on competing over resources. And if they're not scarce, then at least they have to be finite or there is no competition. Um, you know, a high culture is not a competition, or at least it shouldn't be. Um, at the same time, though, populist culture is, by definition, anti-intellectual, I think, because it is anti-elitist, which would carry with it some anti-intellectualism. And when, when you kind of have a culture that's anti-intellectual, that does shave off sophistication, which makes it impossible to export. So we might export the odd 
um, chat show idea or the old TV format like Big Brother, but I think the real cultural exports, the cultural exports that Gordon Brown would tub thump about would be at the sophisticated end of the continuum rather than the other end. Um, the third kind of branch of culture, if you like, just to take the, just to return to the beetroot. <laughs> I mean, I think mainly British British foodstuffs are very salty, which is very good for culture because you know they stimulate the need for more. You can't have marmite without having bread, and you can't have beetroot without having cheese. <laughs> so I think I think you know where it comes down to kind of food and cultural event. I think it is kind of predicated on a constant movement. Well, high culture fosters economic disengagement. Well, oh, we've got to think very, very seriously about this one. I mean, that's a worry. I think you've left a little cat out of a bag there. And you, well, you wouldn't take a Henry Moore home unless you wanted to boil it down for scrap. Um, <laughs> there you are. There's, there are lessons for us there. Um, our next speaker is Ben Evans, who's co-founder of the London Design Festival. Ben's worked around the culture industry. He's done everything. He's been organiser, events, policy, and institutional things. And he's, for better or worse, he's the co-inventor of Nesta. Ben. Thank you. Um, I want to say I'm not Christopher Fraylin, nor do I think I look particularly like Christopher Fraylin. But uh, I was taught by Christopher Fraylin. And so perhaps there is some link there. Perhaps I did learn something from him. Um, I want to focus on something slightly different from the other speakers. I mean, culture is fine up to a point. Uh, it cheers us up, it fuels tourism, which is, after all, the, uh, the world's biggest industry still. Um, but uh, picking up what Zoe was saying is that it is largely static economically. So my focus I want to talk about is more on the UK PLC. So with that in mind, perhaps we should be talking a little bit more about creativity as opposed to culture. And what I mean by creativity is the creative industries, which after all, I think, is the engine for the uh, new economy of, of UK PLC. And there's been some quite significant changes in, uh, in recent years um, on, on that front. Uh, we were the inventors of this idea of the creative industries some point back in the early 90s, early mid-90s. Now, everyone around the world talks about the creative industries as a key point of their economy. Um, at the heart of this is talent. Um, brains and skills are perhaps our only real competitive advantage left. Um, but uh, in government policy terms, we continue to kind of arm and arm about it. And uh, DCMS, I think, has sat on the fence on, uh, on the creative industries for some time. Do you let it continue to grow organically? Do you have implementary strategic interventions and um, every time I speak to them they're really not sure which way they want to, to turn um, and that often means not very much in terms of activity. I do think it's important that government is active in this world. Um, the main reason for that is that the rest of the world is playing catch up with us. Um, they see us as the creative epicentre. Uh, they see us as one of the world's creative hubs. Um, been traveling recently and uh, uh, the, the accolade that we have uh, is almost embarrassing and um, they think it's been this con continuous stream of creative glory from the kind of Beatles onwards but there has been some low points somewhere along the line 
And indeed, the only place where we do encounter some cynicism about this is in London and in the UK ourselves. We couldn't possibly be that, people say. Um, but in these other cities, uh, and it is literally in every continent of the world, they are investing substantially in their creative sectors. Um, there's a, an American economist called Richard Florida, who wrote a rather famous book on the creative economy, who uh, has made himself a small fortune, I think, advising cities and governments around the world about the value and the importance of the creative sector. And at the heart, he plays talent. He tells this story of how, in the past, um, talent went to the employer, wherever they may be. But the, the quantum shift is now that the employer comes to find the talent. And talent congregates in, in places, in energetic, creative places. Um, he's produced a Creative City Index, and there's a great deal of competition from cities to climb that ladder. It is a means to, to reshape your identity and put yourself on the map. Now, in UK terms, the economics are very, very sound, um, and I want to focus on them for a second. One in every five of new jobs in London is in the creative economy. Um, it grows at roughly three times the speed of the economy overall. Um, it is one of the reasons why uh, London in particular, but the UK more broadly, has become such an, an international centre. It is a magnet for international creative talent. And there's a fluidity in the creative labour market. You can basically work anywhere in the world. It's unlike if you're a lawyer where you have to retrain if you choose to settle in another city. If you've got creative talent, you want to hang out with other people who've got it. And London, I'm pleased to say, is one of the places that acts as a magnet towards that. Um, the key point of my argument, perhaps, then, is that we've got to do something about this. We've got to safeguard our position at the top of the tree. Um, one of the things we should do is showcase, and my own work is involved in design and, and showcasing, but we have a period every autumn now where we have four key creative events, the Design Festival, the Fashion Week, the Threes Art Fair, and the Film Festival, all which basically butt up against each other in an eight or nine week period. And uh, that is something that we should be promoting more visibly uh, in other parts of the world. Um, we need to protect. Um, the Americans send in the B-52s when their IPR is challenged. The Americans have used cinema for a, for a century as a means to promote themselves. Um, we need to enable. Um, the film industry does rather well, I'm sure, because of uh, the Chancellor's interest in, uh, in, in cinema, but we need more fiscal incentives and other initiatives to enable growth. And finally, we need to attract. Um, I do travel quite widely with, with my job, and I can assure you that the employees that visit London and visit Britain are bored, they're sick to death of talking about Beefeaters and the Tower of London and Shakespeare and all things that everyone else around the world is actually very, very familiar with already and need a directive from the centre to be able to talk about a much, much wider array of creative energy and activity that's going on in our country. Um, as Peter said, Gordon Brown is now uh, talking about 
uh, and saying that we live in the creative capital of the world. I've been to three events and heard him say that. Um, only a few years ago, to get any government minister to say anything vaguely like that was impossible. Um, so that feels like a rather significant step forward. Um, you know, Paris can have the title, as far as I'm concerned, of cultural capital of the world. Um, the last thing they need is another museum, and they've just opened another huge one, and I find the rather bourgeois rigidity of Paris uh, a, a real turnover, to turn off, sorry. And, um, uh, you know, I think part of the structural problems they've got at the moment is because of the way that they perceive culture. Um, so let's keep our titles, creative capital of the world. Uh, UK PLC depends on it. Well, thank you, Ben. I mean, it is w wonderful to be triumphalist with the French about these things. It's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary pleasure. However, and it's wonderful to hear, and to hear, as you say constantly from Gordon, that the creative industries is, um, um, are economically very dynamic. However, I was hearing yesterday from James Dyson at a, a, at a conference how there wasn't much else left, i.e. in terms of British industry and talking about, about you know, the, the shortage of engineers, the shortage of, you know, the death of manufacturing. So it had better work, hadn't it? it I mean, we're the only dynamo left, <laughs> left in our country. Now, and final speaker is Colin Tweedy, CEO of Arts and Business, which is the organisation that puts the two together. He's also chairman of something called CIREC, which is a problem mispronounced it. It's a sort of European Media Arts and Media Committee, a director of the Oxford Stage Company, a trustee of the Serpentine Gallery. I can't go on. Culture stuff thick and fast. And somewhere back there, the, the most marvellous thing in his CV, corporate finance officer, Guinness Mann Merchant Bank. So, you know, there's a, there's a hard pebble in there. Colin. Um, thank you, Peter. I'm slightly worried there's a sort of element of complacency um, creeping into today's conversation. Um, I remember it was nearly 20 years ago when um, Mrs. Thatcher said at the Tate, um, London is the cultural capital of the world, Paris is second rate, and everyone cheered. So before we all cheer too loudly, Mrs. Thatcher said it before you did, Ben. Um, and the idea of being bored to death by Shakespeare, well, I'm not sure if that is a good advert for the UK PLC either, and perhaps you wrote better than anybody else. Um, moving on, but picking up on Ben's comment about the creative industries, um, the Chancellor, my goodness, we never talk about Tony Blair any longer, do we? Um, the, the Chancellor said that the creative industries, and I heard him say this one, um, will be 50% of the UK economy in 10 years' time. 50% of the UK economy, what does that actually mean? It won't mean anything unless you sustain an absolute dynamic and healthy cultural environment from the not-for-profit cultural sector. If the comprehensive spending review, which is imminent, cuts um, the DCMS's grant, we're not going to have um, Britain having 50% of the economy and the creative industries in 10 years' time. Um, John Holden of Demos has very clearly set out a th three set sets of values which can be attributed to culture and the UK. And as John Holden isn't here, I shall nick his um, ideas, and, but I'm not claiming them as my own. 
Firstly, there is a set of intrinsic values. Intrinsic values which are hard to measure, they involve views on quality. For example, is E&O better or worse than the Royal Opera? And we're not here to discuss that. But there are those intrinsic values, and the Arts Council has to make those decisions for good or ill. There are the set of instrumental values, arts and healthcare. I mean, if you look, go to the Chelsea Hospital, you will actually see you know, paintings on the ceiling as you're wheeled in to be operated on. It calms you down. I'm not sounding cynical. Actually, there is real links that the arts can help in healthcare. Obviously, we've talked about urban renewal, and we've, um, and Tony Hall talked about the Sage Gateshead, for example. Um, and of course, instrumental values, art sponsorship. That's my job. 500 million pounds now come from the corporate sector, individuals and trusts and, trust and foundations together. And why is the Gateshead Music Centre called the Sage? Because this software company called Sage has given six million pounds to it. There's also a set of institutional values. The arts give us a sense of identity i.e. that public realm engagement, civic pride. And Madeleine Bunting, when she was, I mean, I know she's still at The Guardian, but when she was still at Demos, she talked in an article on, in October, on October the 3rd, and I remember reading it at the Tory party conference, she talked about culture rather than politics now being at the heart of the public realm. She noted that actually political affiliation is falling, but look at the number of people who, um, saw the Anthony Gormley um, burning of the Wicker Man at Margate, his amazing Angel of the North, the Sultan's Elephant, which the Arts Council brought to London um, this year. And I'd like to finish with um, not Julie Birchall or even Zoe Williams, but with Joe Brand. Without the arts, we are merely monkeys with khakis. <laughs> Thank you very much, Colin. So, intrinsic values. A great lineup: intrinsic values, instrumental values. It cheers you up to see those great paintings as you're going in. Institutional values, our identity, and culture rather than politics at the centre of the public realm now. To which I'd add the whole question of the way culture and the arts becomes part of soft diplomacy, the business of talking to people in other lands. It's quite an important... I mean, we talk constantly about, as it were, the export figures for culture and the arts, but there's also that question of creating relationships, making friends for Britain. Now, it's your turn. Questions, observations, no rants, or I'll cut you off. Um, now, wait for the microphone, as ever. Say who you are and where you're from, and if it's a question, who it's for. Martin. Thank you. Is this on? Yeah. Uh, Martin Davidson from British Council. Um, first of all, thank you, Tony, for uh, agreeing that we're underfunded. I can but agree with you. Um, the point I would like to make is really about international culture and the impact of internationalism on our own culture in this country. Um, I'm slightly surprised that we didn't actually hear more about international. Um, because of the way in which our own culture here, it seems to me, is intrinsically linked with all cultures around the world. If nothing else, um, that truism that we're a mongrel race and that we draw on culture from all around the world, it seems to me, is critical. And our ability to continue to draw on that seems to me to be absolutely intrinsic 
to our ability as a country to continue to uh, build the creative industries. Um, so I think that that international aspect is, is of real importance. I think the other point I would like to make is around the issue of uh, culture as personal values, as well as institutional and the other ones. Um, and the extent to which, as a country, we have uh, such a large number of people coming from a whole variety of different parts of the world. And our ability to engage with those other cultures is driven by our understanding of them, our understanding of uh, what makes up our own culture um, and the influences which come into it. And without getting uh, too instrumental about it, um, I do wonder whether or not, um, for example, uh, the way in which the uh, Muslim festival going on in this country at the moment is actually having a huge impact, not just on how we are seen within the, the, those countries overseas, but also the way that people coming from that particular uh, set of cultures see themselves within this country. And I think it could have a very important role to play. So it isn't just Cut Cabbage, our Cut Cabbage, or those books. It's how all those cultures collide and serendipitous hybridization, what we get from immigration, what we make by creating international culture. And there, clearly there is such a thing. More, please. Lady over here. I heard that bit. You're a girl. You're a girl from the valleys. Our culture was singing. We didn't have much else. It was dark. It was pits. It was nothing else. I now live in Lancashire. We don't have a huge amount of culture there. And in all of the village, no, most people are not aware of it. And the point I'm going to make is that I found this morning a little London centric. And I've also found the omission, some people have mentioned things like inclusion. The main thing that we can do with inclusion is education from the beginning. In the Lancashire village that I live, a huge percentage of the people living there have never been to London, and they think that I'm going on a sort of safari because I come here so often. They are amazed. One of the biggest ways that we can include people now has to be via the internet, particularly young people. And there's an awful lot we can deliver by that. Some mention has been made of that, but it's not enough. I also want to talk about Shakespeare. When I went to my first Shakespeare play as a child, I went home and desi designed cod pieces. I thought they were going to be the fashion item of the future. And in fact, we had a party where you decorated your own cod piece. So don't underrate the effect. And I absolutely agree with Tony. Even at my age, I come out of all sorts of things. I was at the Rodin exhibition last week. I went to the producers. I come out transformed, re-educated, better educated. And I also have almost taken home, um, I can't, which sculptor did somebody say you would never take home? I, Henry Moore. Yeah, Henry Moore. Well, I went to a Peter Randall Page exhibition recently. His work has been opened at Southwark today. Tomorrow has been unveiled by the Queen. Thursday, a piece to commemorate Mohicans. 
I went to a, an exhibition of his, and I have bought two four-ton statues that are a pair. You do do these things. You're so moved by them. So we must not underrate the power of the little people, whether they're from Wales or Lancashire, and we must move out. And recently I was in Birmingham because I happened to own a Patrick Hughes painting. If anybody knows Patrick's work, they're stunning. He's got an exhibition in Birmingham, and one of the biggest things, apparently, that have come out of this is that schoolchildren again from school going home and saying to their parents, this is fantastic stuff. Let, will you take me back? I want to see it. And they're taking their parents. So my ultimate point is move the culture to the people because at the end of the day what we all vote is need of votes and to get people to vote you've got to get them young and they'll vote for money for the arts so you're saying there really are people who've never been to notting hill or primrose hill i'm i'm, I'm god i'm i'm so i'm so shocked and you and that you you lot have been rather london-centric gent in the middle there I'm Sandy Walkington, um, portfolio man, I guess. Um, most of the people on the panel, I think, talked about um, culture in terms of things that one chooses to go and see or do or visit, with the possible exception. I mean, Tony did talk about regeneration and Gateshead. It seems to me that one art which hasn't been discussed, really, is architecture. And... Um, if one looks in the UK, when architecture is good, it's very good. And when it's bad, it is simply, simply dire. And thinking about Britishness and how much Britishness overseas is now perceived as drugs and drunkenness and yobbishness, and to what extent that is created by the built environment, which we still allow to happen. I mean, design and build, poor public buildings, terrible new estates which have no sense of urban townscape, would the panel like to comment on the role of decent architecture in terms of stimulating people to think about culture more generally? Thank you, Sandy. And, and anyone who particularly wants to run with this? Um, I think there's been one, one that architecture at the moment is going for a golden period. Um, it's not constrained by form or by style. Um, Another impact that's happened in recent years is that virtually every community in the UK has benefited through the lottery with a new major public building. And, you know, we have touched on these issues of, of identity and pride. And one of the ways that I think that people do exercise loyalty and pride of where they've come from is through the major public buildings that, that they, they inhabit within their area. And I think that's a really, really important point. And, you know, we talked a little bit about Gateshead earlier on. I think most people's view of Gateshead, and I have to admit I've never been there, um, is, has changed through the intervention of major public buildings and quality architecture. And that the key cities in this country have transformed themselves in, in the last generation. And I think, again, that's through, through architectural intervention. I can hear some rumbling to my yeah. left. I think there's not much in my day to disagree with Ben. Um, one person who must have spent a lot of time in the British Library's predecessor at the British Museum must have been Kenneth Clark, and I would like to quote in his book Civilization, where he says one of the reasons why medieval and renaissance architecture is so much better than our own is that then architects were artists. 
Um, Claire. Uh, Claire Fox, Institute of Ideas. Um, I was really um, glad when Tony said that it was sad that we had to even make the argument uh, about the value of the arts. But I disagreed when you said that sport wouldn't have to make that argument because rather depressingly, uh, in order to get any new sports facilities built these days, you have to explain how it relates to the government's health priorities, uh, reduces heart disease, uh, leads to uh, a decline in obesity. And I think what that reflects is that there's a kind of general loss of confidence and loss of nerve about any sector arguing for its own sake. So art for its own sake, sport for its own sake, knowledge for its own sake. Even in, a, in the British glorious uh, British Library, one has to explain how this is going to help um, social ends. So I just want the panel to reflect on why they think that's happened. And I, and I don't know that it's all around saying that the art should contribute to UK PLC, because I think those health examples, which Colin also alluded to, indicates that these days people say, well, art can be important for good social ends as well, but it's just as instrumental, and it seems to me as undermining of art for its own sake as the economic argument. And then just finally, um, creativity. I hate these weasel words. I mean, I've no idea what it means. Anyone I've ever asked to define what it means, I can never explain it. And I'd just like to point out that creativity is usually bad for the arts. And when people are talking it up, I'm always very nervous that what they're saying is creativity is more important than the arts. Uh, to use an example, in education, I was at a remarkable uh, conference where the, DF, uh, the spokesman for the DFES said that there was no need to teach arts and music and specific subjects in schools anymore because we had a creative curriculum. And uh, if one thinks about creative accounting, one might kind of know where to put creativity in its uh, place and understand just how dangerous it is to the arts. I think it's fair to say the, the term was invented in advertising agencies. Um, but um, the lady at the back there with the... Sally Feldman from uh, the University of Westminster. My school is the School of Media Arts and Design, and like many universities, we're flourishing as far as the creative industries are concerned. They may be closing down engineering departments and chemistry departments, but you open a performance degree in popular music and you can fill it three times over. 40 applicants for every, for every place on a film course. So we have an explosion of talent feeding your creative industries in the universities. But I want to put a damper on our triumphalism, actually, because I would say that what we're going to be doing, and our Chancellor, possibly to be Prime Minister, is doing, is creating a slave labour force. We are producing very talented, uh, very creative university graduates who are going into slave labour very often. There are, I would say that among the creative industries, and there are many of them, and they're not exactly the same, but among them are some of the worst managed industries in the country who exploit their young people, um, who expect them to work for nothing, expect them to work as runners. And unless we do something about how these talented people who are leaving us are employed properly and managed properly in these industries, I think it will be as bad as the slave labour in places in the Far East where we now get our clothes. That's a very sobering thought, all these artists being poor, because we're used to the idea of artists being rather careerist and rather rich increasingly. Um, the lady in the second row. Hi, um, my name's Nicola Streeton from the Beacon Art Project, which is based in Lincolnshire. Um, I just want to make three uh, short points. Perhaps the final one is a question. 
Firstly, um, for all our talk about culture, um, I'm here as an ambassador of artists, of the makers, of the people who are working from the bottom up, so you can have as many talks and uh, agendas and so on from the top down, but it's what, whether there's funding, whether there's audience development, the activity is going to carry on regardless. And actually, we've been funded for three years um, by the Arts Council of East Mid Midlands, which has been a fantastic opportunity, and the, a lot of the talk that Tony Hall um, refer to cultural regeneration, to, um, you know, all the words are very familiar to me, but sometimes all those aims, I, we, we, there's a tendency perhaps, and it shouldn't happen, and it must be remembered, to overlook the people doing the activity. And I think there's a lot that funders and other people, bureaucrats, can learn, because the way, basically, it's me and John and up there in the East Midlands. And um, the difference is we have great relationships with our part funding partners, but unfortunately, they knock off at five, and we carry on working till three. And it's our complete passion, and that's what drives the creativity that this country is benefiting from. Second, to pick up on that London-centric point, I'm an ambassador for Out of London. Lincolnshire is one hour on the train, just to locate it for you. And, you know, let's do more of pushing people out, of having meetings like this, perhaps out of London, dare I say. Um, thirdly, and um, excuse me having to say this, this is the real reason perhaps that um, drew my attention to this meeting today is, um, and this is the question perhaps to the panel, can we really talk sensibly about culture with a panel of five men and one woman. Sorry. Uh, and can I just, to go on about three years working in the arts and anyone who's gone into any, uh, and this is visual arts, any arts degree course, you'll see mostly young women. Um, in the artists that have taken place in the event we held this summer, it, the artists were mostly women. In the meetings I've had for the past three years, most of the um, arts administrators are women. Most of the bureaucrats are women within the visual arts world. So I, I do find it quite a surprise. <laughs> Thank you. So we're, we're, I think we stand reproved, really, there. <laughs> and um, and sit, although sit I, I think all, all of us are in the arts, culture, that media, that stuff, we're all in touch with the feminine sides of our nature, but it's not the same. And um, you're right. And Lincolnshire, wherever it is, uh, everybody should go there. We should all go, we should all go there. Uh, um, the, the gent in orange. The Zweisen Museums, Libraries and Archives Council, where I work as inclusion advisor. Uh, Britain PLC, culture PLC. I'm always a little bit worried when in this country we compare culture to supermarkets. And there is one thing supermarkets can't do that culture can do. I have as yet to see a supermarket where people can bring their own products and vegetables and wares and uh, chopped beetroots and whatever. And I think culture is precisely something that should allow people to produce something and to, to contribute to something wider. So it's also to say it's not just bringing the culture to people, it's actually having an infrastructure that genuinely allows people to produce culture. Point well taken, the, 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 the supermarket model is a, is a crass one and it's not participative in the way that it should be in 2006. Uh, the gent at the back there, yes. Thank you. 
Richard Simmons from the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment. Although, in fact, I'm not going to talk about architecture because some of it's already been said. Um, some years ago, in a previous life, I was involved in creating the milieu for the Hoxton and Shoreditch Cultural Quarter, as it's sort of known now. Um, and um, we were criticised, actually, for what we'd done because property values rose. It was, a, it was part of a regeneration programme. Uh, and therefore, artists could no longer afford to work there. So I'd really like to agree with what Sally said, actually, because I think that an economy that depends for 50% of its wealth on people who can't afford to pay the rent um, is actually a considerable risk for UK PLC, if that's what we're going to call it. I'm interested in the panel's views on how we can actually get people to be able to make more money sooner in the arts, because certainly some people do make a lot of money, but it's quite a small elite, I think. Um, and certainly the artists that we worked with were struggling to get their products out, to get people to know what they were doing, and the craftspeople we worked with as well. We helped them with some of that, but I think it's a real issue about how we make this into a really uh, respected and viable economic sector, and not just one that um, we think um, should be full of people who are poor, struggling artists. Um, we've got to wind it up now, alas. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank all the, the brilliant panel for saying such clever things. Uh, thank you all for sounding such interesting warnings about funding, CSR, remember the provinces, remember it's me and John up there in the East Midlands working till 3am and that's, that's what it's really about. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.